You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, if we missed you last week, um, we were in Genesis chapter 6 talking about Noah, and um, we specifically talked about the righteousness of Noah in the midst of mankind being ransacked by sin. And the scriptures tell us that Noah was righteous before God because of his faith, because he believed God. But we also saw that the flood did not fix the sinful condition of man. The flood solution did not fix the sin problem. Well, when you move on in Genesis chapter 9 and the flood resides and Noah makes a covenant with God. In Genesis 9 and 10, what we see is the descendants of Noah begin to move out, spread out, scatter, and become many nations. Now, there's a genealogy that's given in Genesis 5 as the genealogy of Adam unfolds. It's very chronological. There was this person, then came this person, then came this person. In Genesis chapter 9 and 10, Uh, specifically 10, this genealogy with Noah is much more geographical and familial. And so it kind of spreads organically. But what happens is that we see the birth of these different nations across many, many territories and lands. Okay. Now, as we begin this morning, there's something I want to call your attention to that's, that's going to be very important in in what we talk about. Um, If you'll remember At the beginning of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, God gives a command to Adam and Eve. If you look at Genesis 1.28, it says that God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, now if you look in Genesis chapter 9, the flood resides, Noah makes a covenant with God, and in Genesis 9.1, God says again, to Noah and his sons. It says, God bless Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the first thing that God commands from his people at the apex of creation. And then again, at this new beginning is be fruitful and multiply, but God doesn't stop there. If you look in Genesis chapter 10, something begins to happen. In verse 5, it says, From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. They scattered. They spread out. Verse 18, the last part of it, says, Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. They scattered. They spread out. Then finally, in verse 32, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So God says to his people, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why does God care about his people filling the earth? Well, In Habakkuk, we, Chad read from Habakkuk during worship, in Habakkuk chapter 2, listen to what 
it says in verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah has a vision of the throne of heaven, he sees angels bowing down before God nonstop. And it says that they're crying out nonstop. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So understand God has called his people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his name, his renown, and his glory. That's the calling on our lives. Here's the thing though. Every day we choose whether or not we're going to flee from that calling. We're going to run from it or we're going to resist it and we're going to fight it, or we're going to submit, surrender, and follow it. We can run from it, we can fight it, or we can follow it. This morning, we're going to see what happens when we fight against it. Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. Let's read it together. Genesis 11 verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Stop there for a second. You saw in Genesis 10, the spreading out beginning to happen. What this lets us know immediately is that Genesis 11 is not chronologically happening after everything that takes place in Genesis chapter 10. The events of Genesis 11 that we're about to read probably happened somewhere in the midst of Genesis chapter 10. And we're also kind of aware of this because in Genesis chapter 10, verse 9, we hear about this guy who's from the the descendants of Ham, Noah's son. His name is Nimrod. Whatever your name is, if you don't like it, just feel better today. Your name isn't Nimrod. And if it is, I'm sorry. Um, But this says about Nimrod that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So we know that he was probably the leader of these people that we're reading about. All right. Back to Genesis 11. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
So here is this clan of people, probably led by Nimrod, all right? And they find this place called Shinar. You can imagine the people um, back in the 1800s moving across the U.S. for the Oklahoma land rush. You finally find your spot. You stake your claim, all right? They're moving, but then they find this place and they go, hey, this looks good. Let's claim this. This is where we're going to drop down. This is where we're going to stay. And the scripture says that they said, let's make some brick and mortar. Now, it's interesting I got to go to Israel a couple months ago, which by the way, hopefully in a couple weeks here, I'm going to have a time of sharing about that and talking about the trip that we're planning to take next year. But when I was in Israel, um, I saw a throne of Jeroboam. I saw the gateway leading into the city of Dan that Abraham would have walked through. Mind blowing. That's 4,000 something years old. Um, you, You look at synagogues, everything that you see almost now that has truly sustained, it was made out of stone. There are not a lot of things being found that were made out of brick. So why is this significant? Well, they say, let's make some brick for stone and some bitumen for mortar. What's happening here is not only are they using substitutes for what would have been best to build with, they're using homemade substitutes. We don't have any of that. Let's throw something together. So first of all, this is not a good building decision. But also there's a bit of spiritual application there if you can glean that for yourself. Uh, Oftentimes, maybe we just grab something else and we, we go with sorry substitutes and we wind up regretting it. But so why are they doing this? Well, they say, let's build a city for ourselves and a tower to the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves. Why build a city? Well, if we build a city right here, this is our way of avoiding being dispersed over the whole earth. Now you also know that in the Old Testament especially, if you read about someone building a city or you read about a city being in existence, what's always built along with a city? A wall. We're always going to build a wall. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, you build a wall for protection. You build a wall to basically say, hey, you're not coming in unless we want you in. But you also build a wall to claim territory. Anything on, around, or inside this wall belongs to us, the people in the wall. So that's why we build a wall. But why do we build a tower to the heavens? We build a tower to the heavens when we want to declare our own renown. When we want to make a statement about who we are. These were not watchtowers that they built along with the city so that they could see off in the distance if someone was coming. This was a tower to the heavens. So why are they doing this? I mean, what's the ultimate motive and goal going on here? Well, they told us, let's do this. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower up to the heavens, make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. 
The New Living Translation words it this way, this will bring us together and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Let's go back five minutes and ask ourselves, what did God command? What did God command Adam and Eve at the apex of creation? What did God command Noah and his sons at this new beginning? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, scatter, disperse. And here they're saying, hey, um, let's protect this thing because we don't want to disperse. Fill the earth, scatter, spread. It's not a coincidence that Jesus would later say, as you go, make disciples. Mankind did not want to and still does not want to scatter. That is not our natural inclination. That is not what our flesh wants to do. What do we want to do? We want to stay put and be comfortable, right? Probably no one in this room, if I sat down with you and said, hey, I got an idea for you, you should move. You would probably punch me in the face if you've moved before. Nobody wants to move, you know, especially like across the country or the ocean, but we don't even want to move across the city. We have to pack up all of our stuff. Then you get there and you're like, I don't know where anything is. And you go through all of that mess. And, you know, when we moved to our new house two and a half years ago, it was like, let's burn the ships. Uh, I would personally, if any of you'd like to join me, I think burning a U-Haul would actually be fun of saying to the Lord, if I never have to do that again, I'm great with it. Because we want to stay put and be comfortable. It's our inclination. Why is it so important that we recognize this? Well, because it's significant in that God has mandated we be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. It's going to take movement. It's going to take being uncomfortable sometimes. So what's ultimately going on here with the people in Shinar is sin and rebellion. What's happening is the city and the tower, these are outward expressions of these inward grumblings that they have against God. It's an outward expression of inward sin. One of the things that they're guilty of here is the love of security. And when I say that, it's probably a better better thing to say is the love of perceived security that you and I can protect things that regardless of what we say on the inside, we just don't believe that God is going to protect our interest. Okay. And so we build a city and we say to ourselves, I'm not going to take any risk on this whole filling the earth thing. I think I got a good thing here. Let's build a wall. But along with the love of security, there's also this love of praise, a crave to make a name for ourselves. And so we build a tower to the heavens. I like what we got going on here. So let's protect it, right? But then along with that, let's promote it. Let's protect it, but let's tell everybody how great we are at the same time. It's significant to know that Shinar, this place that they come and they 
stick their flag in the ground and they say, let's build a city. This would later become Babylon. Babylon, as you probably know, would become the center of civilization in the ancient world. Nobody was ahead of Babylon in in their technology and in their advancements. They became very, very well known for these towers that they built called ziggurats. And these were not tall, skinny towers. These were towers that built like immensely wide and kept stacking and building and stacking and building. And that's very likely what the Tower of Babel looked like. So to the Babylonians, all right, the word Babel, which this is all tied together, the word Babel to them meant gate of the gods, gate of the gods. So in the minds of the Babylonians, but even the people who laid the way for them right here in Genesis 11, in their minds and in their eyes, they're building one of mankind's greatest achievements. They're looking at this tower they're erecting, this tower of Babel, and this is a tower to the gods. That's the way they see it. Well, now here's some irony. There's this Hebrew word, and it's actually the word that Moses is using. This Hebrew word sounds just like Babel, but it doesn't mean gate to the gods. It means mixed up and confused. So what does that mean? What it means is that for Moses, as Moses is writing this, the significance of this is that from God's perspective, from his almighty perspective and looking at what these people are doing, he's not looking and going, wow, how magnificent is this tower that they're building all the way up to me? He's looking and saying, these people are mixed up and confused. I didn't ask them to build a tower. Now for more irony, look at verse five. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. How ironic, how weird that they've erected a tower to the gods, a tower to the heavens. And what does God have to do? God has to come down to see it. It's like he has to stoop down. Our ways are are so far below what God can do. He has to stoop down to even take note of it. Think about this. Isaiah says, God, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your thoughts are higher than ours. The Psalms tell us that the earth is the Lord's footstool. And so not only are they trying to build something that they think is worthy of the gods and God has to come down and look at it. If you'll remember what we talked about a minute ago, they're even using materials to build it that are substitutes. Haven't you found in your life that when God calls us to something that he always provides the way to do it? Yet here they are and they're having to come up with homemade brick and mortar that brick and that mortar would eventually rot and decay. In Psalm 127.1, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, 
the laborer labors in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman might as well go home and sleep. He's wasting his time. That's my version. Unless the Lord builds, the laborer labors in vain. Here's the thing. When it comes to God's calling on our lives, if we choose to fight it rather than follow it, there's going to be a point where the flesh or the enemy or both begin whispering to us exactly what the enemy whispered to Eve. Are you sure that's what God said? God didn't mean that. You you won't die. There's just something that you want because you know you know what's best for you. There's something that you want that God's withholding from you. When we choose to fight against God's calling on our lives as his people, that will eventually begin to manifest itself in us. In Proverbs 14, 12, King Solomon says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Now, King Solomon throughout Proverbs, there are a lot of places where he reiterates himself, where he may say something and he'll word it a little bit differently, but there are very few places where King Solomon verbatim says the same thing over again. But if you read Proverbs 1625, he once again says verbatim, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Friends, I want to encourage you that you and I need to spend time prayerfully considering and considering often, am I seeking the Lord? Am I seeking after his heart? Am I seeking after his guidance? Am I seeking after his provision? Am I seeking him? Am I surrendering to him? Am I serving him? Am I serving his glory, his name, his renown? And as we spend time prayerfully considering that and asking the spirit and the word to be the thing that expose us and show us the truth about that. This is something else that we can understand. The way to know who it is that we're really seeking and serving is to prayerfully examine what it is that we're building with our lives. If you want to know who it is that you're seeking and serving with your life, take a prayerful look at what it is that you're building. Are you building and erecting and striving for your kingdom or God's? Because see, what we want is his people for those to come in line with one another. Look at verse 6. It says, the Lord came down to see the city. And then it says, the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Okay, first of all, make a note here. God didn't say, this is only the beginning of what they can do. He says, this is only the beginning of what they will do. There's a difference. 
God says nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Make no mistake. This is not God feeling his supremacy, his authority, his majesty being threatened by collective human ingenuity. Like God stops all of heaven and says, have you guys seen what they're doing? They are amazing. I mean, we created them to be smart, but they have fully surpassed my expectations. What if we let this go on? They may actually build that tower and it reach all the way up here to me. That's not what God's saying. What is happening is God is recognizing what the builders of Babel did not. And that is the devastation that sin would wreak if human pride was allowed to go unimpeded. If the progress, if you will, of human pride kept going and manifested itself, God knew where this would lead. He says, who knows what they will do They'll keep running this course. And this wasn't my plan to begin with. If you want a modern day example of this, to be very honest with you, I say look no further than the Nazis. Think about it for a minute. Let's protect our way of life. Let's protect it. But let's also promote it. And how are we going to promote it? Well, there's only really one way to promote it, and that's to advance it. And this is not about that our race is a little bit better than everybody else's. It's about that our race is the only one. And so we'll just extinguish all the rest in front of us. And you may read Genesis 11 and go, no, wait a minute, Brian, I don't see that in here. No, you don't. But that's where this leads. And see, God has this divine, sovereign understanding of where the things, the intentions, the plans of our hearts will ultimately lead us. John Bloom is a writer for Desiring God. And on the Desiring God website, he had an article about this story. And I want to read to you what he says. We who now have the benefit of observing a few thousand years of recorded history should know better than our ancient predecessors. The technologically accelerated 20th century and the thousands upon thousands of war dead we memorialize today bear witness to how much evil can be unleashed when the best and brightest human minds put their heads together to build their own babbles. We need to ask and prayerfully discern, Lord, what am I building with my life? John Calvin said this, whoever wants to be great in this world starts by being contemptuous toward men and ends by being proud before God. So he is like one of the giants and fights against heaven. 
And Calvin's words are very reminiscent of what was going on in Genesis chapter 5 and 6, right before God said, I'm done, and I'm going to wipe this out, and I'm going to begin again. Finally, this one is in your sermon notes. David Atkinson in his commentary on Genesis says this, the story of the Tower of Babel is a sad description of the fracture of community, of a breakdown of fellowship, of a failure in communication, and of a growth in isolation and confusion. It all results from a communal failure to live in dependence on God, an insistence on striving to reach the heavens, and from giving way instead to pride in human achievements and power, and from human beings' determination to be the source of their own security. Does that carry a warning which the world then and now needs to hear? I think the answer to that question is pretty simple, yes. So standing here on this side of history, what do we do with the Tower of Babel? I think that we hopefully allow it to push our thoughts forward into the realization that Jesus Christ is the center of our lives. And not only that, Jesus Christ is the center of life itself. If you remember for just a few moments last week, we looked in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says in verse 16 and 17, he says that all things in talking about Jesus were made through him, in him, by him, and for him that in him all things hold together. John at the beginning of his gospel says that everything that was made, it was made through him. And that we understand that Jesus Christ is creator, sustainer, provider, redeemer. And so here they are, the people building the Tower of Babel, what are they doing? They're making something other than God the center of their lives. What is it that they're making the center of their lives? Themselves. We like what we've got going. Let's protect it. Let's just stay put. Their whole existence began to be about them. Friends, We need to understand that when we make the center of our lives, us, when we become the center of our life, our security, our ambition, and our pride will become the centrifuge for our existence. They will become the catalyst for everything that we do. Me, protect me, serve me, benefit me. And when you and I wind up there, do you know what winds up happening? We wind up building this tower to the gods made out of sorry substitutes that will rot and decay and fall right through our hands. But instead we look to Jesus. And what did Jesus say? He said, hey, don't store up the treasure of this world. Because the moths will eat it, rust will destroy it, it will decay, it will go away. 
Store up treasure in heaven. Set your mind on things above. Live for eternity. And then just a few verses later, Jesus says to the people on the hillside that day, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, seek the Lord, seek God first. He'll take care of you. He takes care of the birds. He takes care of the flowers. He takes care of all of his creation and he loves you immensely more than he loves those things. He will take care of you. Friends, the way to know who we're seeking and we're serving with our lives is to take a prayerful look at what it is that we're building. Are we investing in the kingdom of God or are we pouring our heart, our life, our soul into our own ambition and our own pride? I believe that when the psalmist said, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart, what that means is that you and I can come to this place in our lives through Jesus Christ where what we're seeking after, this kingdom that we're in pursuit of, that it is God's kingdom. Are we always going to be in this wrestling match against our flesh until Jesus comes back? Yes, we are, but may we wrestle well. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that in this moment through your spirit that you would have the freedom to speak to our hearts, Lord. Lord, we ask this morning that you would protect us from the temptation to look to any substitute other than you. God, that we would have such an awareness that because you are not just the creator, you are sustainer. You are provider and redeemer. Lord, that you supply our needs. You take care of us. Father, give us such an awareness today that the clothes on our backs, they're from you. The car we got here inside, that's from you. The roof over our head, from you food in our refrigerator our pantry on our table from you Lord what do we need that we don't have nothing nothing 
you are the great provider. Because even if we were hungry and we were cold and we were naked, if we have you, it's enough. Jesus, do something in us that causes us to believe that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Father, this morning we ask that you would protect our hearts from the love of security. God, protect us from complacency and apathy. Lord, we also pray that you would protect us from pride. God, that you would empty our lives of our pride. Fill us with all humility, Lord Jesus. God, protect us from the temptation to fight your calling. Give us hearts that are just wholeheartedly surrendered to following you. Hearts that say, Lord God, your face is what we seek. lives be spent for your glory. God, may we just become disillusioned with the things of this world. so good, Jesus. What's the Lord calling you to do today? Is there unconfessed sin in your life? John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. something you're holding on to that God has said, you, you need to let go of that. Is God calling you to risk for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his glory? just a moment as we respond to the Lord, I just want to say if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, some of our pastors, elders, leaders are going to be in the back of the tables. They would love to talk with you, pray with you, share the gospel with you.
But I'd like to just ask you all to just quietly stand. And in these next moments, may we very reverently, obediently respond to Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.